As we continue in worship this evening, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles uh, to the prose translation of Psalm 84. That's Psalm 84 in your copies of the scriptures. Once more, we'll be reading the entirety of the psalm together this evening. That's Psalm 84, and we'll commence our reading there at the superscription. Beloved, hear once again the word of our God. To the chief musician upon Gittim, a psalm for the sons of Korah. How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts! My soul longeth, yea, even fainteth for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Yea, the sparrow hath found an house, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. Even thine altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are they that dwell in thy house. They will be still, praising thee. Selah. Blessed is the man whose strength is in thee, in whose heart are the ways of them. Who, passing through the valley of Baca, make it a well. The rain also filleth the pools. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them in Zion appeareth before God. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Selah. Behold, O God, our shield, and look upon the face of thine anointed. For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of sin, wickedness rather. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man that trusteth in thee. Amen. May we know God's blessing under his word this evening. Well, beloved, as we continue our time briefly in this psalm, I'll just remind you that the psalmist commences here immediately with deep thoughts about the worship of God. He refers to the worship of God, the ordinances, as the dwelling place of the Lord, as the Lord's tabernacles. It's a staggering thing. He's saying here that here he meets with the living God. Here he appears before God. And then he goes on, if you remember in those first several verses, to to depict these courts as courts of life and vitality, courts of safety, courts of growth. The worship of God to him is something that induces life. And also, as you see at the very end of that fourth verse, it is the worship of God that really begets the worship of God. And, and there's an indefinite nature to that fourth verse that we can't miss. He's, he, he really is, as it were, extending, if you like, the timeline right into eternity. As these who are worshiping God, as he sees them there in the tabernacle, he sees them as just continuing their praise without a stop. In other words, beloved, these first four verses of Psalm 84 present to us this picture of the worship of God on earth as a genuine foretaste of heaven. God is there. Life and vitality are there. And 
the praises of God's people are ceaseless. That's the image that you and I are left with as we come to the fifth verse. And what do we find there? Well, our text, verses 5 to 7, begin thus. He begins with another statement of blessing. He says, blessed is the man. That is, this one possesses true goodness. In fact, the idea behind blessedness, scripturally speaking, is such a one possesses the greatest good. Blessed is the man whose strength is in thee. Now, what does he mean by that? Just briefly, beloved, if you recall what we read from Isaiah 12, an answer comes to us readily. There the prophet has, as the mouthpiece of the church, set before us a very similar phrase. He says, God is my salvation. And then this, I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. You note here that God becoming the the prophet's salvation, the church's salvation, is inextricably tied to to the church's trust in Jehovah. That is how the Lord becomes someone's strength. They cast, as it were, all of themselves upon his gracious omnipotence. They leave themselves in his tender care. You see this again in Jewel, in the third chapter. The Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. How is he the strength of the children of Israel? Because he has been made their hope. They have lodged themselves in his tender care. And so the psalmist in this fifth verse is saying that this man is blessed who has entrusted himself to the care of God. But then he says also that these ones are blessed, and the words are, in whose heart are the ways of them. Now, perhaps that's elliptical in our translations. So in the original, it, would, it could read something like this, in whose heart are the ways, or you could even translate it, Pilgrim ways. The psalmist begins then by stressing the blessedness of those who have faith in the Lord, who make the Lord their strength. But he continues that train of thought by saying that these are also the same who have an affection for the pilgrim ways of God's people. In the context, what does that mean? That means here that those who have made God their strength by faith are those who have affection for going up to appear before the Lord. They have an affection for those ways that would lead to the courts of God. Obviously, beloved, this is shorthand, if you like, for saying these are those who have an affection a craving even for the public worship of the living God. There is an inextricable connection in the psalmist's mind between he who trusts in Jehovah and he who loves the public worship of the Lord. The two in his mind are inextricable. And as you work through these verses, the following verses, you see how this comes to the fore. The ones who are described as blessed are the same ones who, in verses 6 and 7, go through both affliction and blessing. They suffer both distressing 
even what would be otherwise disheartening situations. And under that, they know the blessing of God. And in both, they persevere to the worship of God. My friend, if you remember just briefly what that looks like in its Old Covenant context, perhaps that might help us. You remember that three times out of the year, Israel was to appear before God in the place where God had placed his name. And and the Lord, you remember the book of Exodus, makes it very clear to them that as they leave their farms, perhaps leaving their farms that were miles and miles removed from the place of worship, and of course for extended times, he says that I would that he would protect their livings. As they were in faithfulness, making these pilgrim journeys to appear before the Lord, the Lord would safeguard them. And so, there, of course, the worshiper, his anxieties are to be alleviated. But there's another element to this as well. Not only could one be anxious, perhaps, for leaving their homes, their farms for such a time, but you remember even Psalm 120. A psalm of ascents, arguably a collection of psalms that are, are really giving us a picture of the worshiper's disposition as he approaches the courts of God. You remember in Psalm 120, the psalmist looks to the hills, and why does he do so? He does so because he sees all throughout them perils, one after another. And you remember the conclusion of that psalm is that he must entrust himself only to Jehovah. The pilgrimage was a difficult thing. And of course, in the New Covenant, that kind of pilgrimage is done away with. As we saw last time we were together, the blessing, part of the blessing of the New Covenant is that the worship of God would no longer be restricted geographically, but it would be, as it were, promiscuously sent throughout the world. Incense would be offered to God, as the prophet Malachi has it, in all places. It's the blessing of the New Covenant. So is Psalm 84 at this point applicable to the New Covenant believer? And the answer, as you can imagine, is, of course, in the affirmative. Absolutely it is. Because as we said last time, it's not only the Old Covenant believer who appears before God in public worship. Every time you and I gather into the assembly of God's people for the stated purpose of his worship, we too appear before God. And so here we have something for us that should guide us in our thinking as we would seek to appear before him. And beloved, perhaps as a prefatory remark, these several verses remind us that to appear before God, it's not a small thing. It's not a light thing. To do so aright, whether in the Old or in the New Covenant, It will require one to overcome great difficulties, and it requires of them great earnestness. So what do these verses teach us? Our theme this evening is just this, that earnest worshipers receive strengthening grace. Earnest worshipers receive strengthening grace. And we see that under three headings. Those who maintain zeal, first of all, in the heart for God's worship. Those who maintain that zeal throughout hardship and also throughout health or blessing. These ones are those earnest earnest worshipers who receive this quickening and strengthening grace. And so very briefly, beloved, this evening, I want us to take, first of all, 
the heart, as the psalmist presents that to us in the fifth verse. He says, blessed is the man in whose heart are the ways, or these pilgrim ways, this, this affection for the worship of God. He says, that man is blessed, possesses the highest, the greatest good. And, beloved, as you read throughout the scriptures, that, of course, is starkly contrasted with the hypocrite. In Proverbs 14, the backslider in heart shall be filled with his own ways. The idea of, of having one's ways in their heart is, is this idea of brooding and cherishing something. In other words, the ways of the worshiper in Psalm 84, the, the, the ways to, to, to God's house to appear before the living God, these are ways that are thought much upon by the psalmist. Regarded highly and affectionately by the psalmist. The worship of God is something that he cherishes from within. And you can't miss, beloved, in this text, how, how emphatic this is. When the psalmist says, the pilgrim ways are in this man's heart. He's saying that just the ways to Zion are things that he regards with the utmost affection. It's not just the worship of God. It's even the way that the psalmist takes that delights his soul. And you see this powerfully, of course, in Psalm 122. We sing it often. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go up into the house of the Lord. Just the, just the, just the invitation, as it were, just, just the call from, from their neighbor excites this, this great and, and deep affection for the worship of God. That's the man in our text. He has such a longing for the worship of God that just the way, just the intimation, is enough to fill his heart with joy. I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise. Psalm 42. The worship of God is something that is lodged in this man's heart. And this shows us so clearly, doesn't it, that biblical worship requires sincere love if we're going to worship aright. Sincere love for the worship of God is demanded. You see, the hypocrites in the church under age, they said, as Malachi reports, Behold, what a weariness is it. And ye have snuffed at it, saith the Lord of hosts. And, and you remember what Malachi is dealing with. He's dealing with a generation of people who, who were going up to the worship of God. They, they were engaged in all of the external accoutrements of the old covenant administration. But, he says very pointedly, In their hearts, they regarded it merely as a weariness. How deeply does that contrast with our psalmist this evening? The ways, he says, to the worship of God are cherished by the psalmist. While in Malachi's day, the whole business was a weariness to professing believers. What's required of true believers in short form is given to us in Isaiah 58. If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath from doing thy pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight. That, beloved, is the true believer, says says the Lord. 
You could take the Sabbath there as something of a synecdoche, something as standing, as it were, in part for the whole. And if we take it that way, then, beloved, it's all that, that pertains to every aspect of worship. We are to call the worship of our God the day principally whenever we, we engage in it, the Sabbath day. But every act of worship, the Lord would enjoin us to call it a delight. And as we look at this text, beloved, this, this blessedness that the psalmist describes for us, it's not just that he's saying to us, well, this is a good thing to have, a nice disposition. You remember, as we've said before, that the Psalter comes to us, presents to us, as it were, this cross-section of the man's heart to show us what's normative. It's not only this is what the psalmist experienced, this is what you and I, you and I should know of ourselves. Psalm 27, then is normative as well. One thing have I desired of the Lord. That's one thing over all others. This is the chief thing that the psalmist's heart, his cry, his cry is that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Biblical worship, beloved, always requires the heart. In fact, biblically speaking, it is not worship in God's account if the heart is not so engaged. You can occupy space, you can go through ritual, but according to the word of God, it is the heart that, if you like, is in fact the heart of worship. Surely there's a challenge in here for us somewhere, for you and for me. Biblical piety. Biblical piety. That is, godliness according to God is such that this is more precious to us, the public assembly of God's people in his worship. But that's not all the psalmist presents to us. Secondly, he gives to us these worshipers of God in the midst of hardship. You find this in verse 6. It says, through the valley of Baca, they make it a well. Now, translated quite literally, it just means the valley of weeping. And the idea behind that, of course, is that this is a period, a time, a place of affliction. But then, curiously, he adds these words. He says, rain also filleth the poles. And the question is, of course, what does that mean? You recognize that this is, the, this is a pilgrim psalm. And so the psalmist is describing pilgrims in the midst of adversity. They are weeping. But there are wells along the way. It's the image that's given to us. And the question is, who filled the wells? And the answer has to be, of course, the Lord Jehovah. The idea is, is that then these are pilgrims who are watering the trail to the worship of God with their tears, while God also waters their path with his blessing. There is both difficulty and blessing, both affliction and mercy that are bound up in the worshiper's experience here. What this teaches us powerfully, and and we could spend far more time on this, but, but what this teaches us is that persevering worshipers know God's blessing 
through mourning. This is perhaps one of the most difficult elements of Psalm 84. The psalmist is teaching us that that those who would appear before the Lord, they do know God's blessing, but they know it through a valley of weeping. They know it through a veil of tears. They know it through mourning. And beloved, that's true as well for the New Covenant believer. There are two ways that we can understand mourning in this text. And both, I believe, are quite legitimate. And both certainly pertain to the subject matter. The first way, of course, is the mourning that is induced through repentance. In Jeremiah 31, you remember that image of Ephraim is given to us. And there the prophet presents to us this picture. They shall come with weeping and with supplications while I lead them. That's what the Lord says. And then he says, Ephraim, he saw Ephraim bemoaning himself thus, Thou hast chastised me and I was chastised. As a bullock unaccustomed to the yoke. Note what he says here. I will lead my people, but he will lead them through genuine repentance that is always tied to mourning over sin. I would say that this, of course, is one of those elements in Christianity that we have lost. And I think I could say that without any fear of future contradiction. I think we've lost this. But the Lord says, this is how I will lead my people, through mourning. And he gives Ephraim as an example of that. You can see this in Daniel. I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God, for the holy mountain of my God. Note what Daniel says. He says, as I am praying, I am also confessing my sin and the sins of my people. The idea that Daniel presents there is that this is, this is simply the way of approach to God. Inextricably so, he must be led this way. And of course, Zechariah 12 gives this to us so explicitly. When the Lord speaks of the new covenant blessing, he says, I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him. Beloved, this again is a picture of of godliness. And we can't get away from the fact that, that this is what it means to approach the living God. Perhaps I'm getting a bit ahead of myself here, but Beloved, that means that every time you and I come into this place, if we're acknowledging the holy God before whom we're appearing, if we're acknowledging the fact that that the only right way to approach Him is to engage in genuine repentance, to afflict our souls in the way that He would prescribe, how infrequently do we do that? The Lord here says this is his ordinary way of leading his people through a veil of tears that they might appear before him. There's another way of understanding these tears. Not only just repentance, but also affliction. The Lord leads his people to himself also in this way. You remember Hebrews 12, of course, gives this to us powerfully. Famously, that text reads, Follow peace with all men and and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. But do you remember the broader context to that? In the foregoing verses, the apostle tells us how these believers will 
have holiness. We have had fathers of our flesh who for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he, that is the Lord for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Beloved, none appear before the Lord, says the apostle, without also knowing the chastisement of the Lord. And that chastisement comes, yes, of course, on account of specific sins at times. Sometimes it is the general rod of affliction that's sent. But the Lord is very clear. None will appear before him but those who are chastened so. Cross-bearing then is necessary. Going through a veil of tears to appear before the Lord is necessary. And in this text we're told that mourning and mercy are joined together. The question that comes to us from this is very straightforward. It comes to us as a tacit challenge as well. How earnest are we to meet with God? I don't mean how earnest are we to be present here on an evening like this evening. You recognize any hypocrite could do that. How earnest are you to appear before God, to meet with God in this place? This text reminds us that if you are so earnest, it will require you to go through a valley valley of weeping. You will know God's blessing, and the blessing will far outweigh the pain. But don't think, as the scriptures teach to us, that the way to meet, to appear before the Lord aright, will be one that the world could count as easy. What are you willing to sacrifice and suffer that you might meet with the living God and his ordinances? But thirdly and finally, and we close really here, not only do these worshipers continue through affliction, but he says here that they go from strength to strength. And the idea there is they go from one supply of strength to another. And he concludes, until they appear before God. I want you to notice, beloved, that in this text, there's something of a contrast to what he said to us before. There he pictured the worshiper in a valley of tears. Now he shows to us a picture of them in strength and going from strength to greater strength. But there's one theme that continues. And that is that even in those times of plenty and quickening, they continue in the worship of God. Quickening drives them to worship. It doesn't divert them at all. The blessing of God does not become an occasion for that lukewarm or Laodicean spirit. They continue, they persevere to God's worship. And beloved, those who are persevering worshipers, they press on under divine blessing. This text so powerfully reminds us that it is grace that induces faithfulness at every point. It is God providing new measures of strength that lead the worshiper, lead the Christian to greater faithfulness to God. Quicken me, says the psalmist, after thy loving kindnesses, so shall I keep the testimony of thy mouth. I want you to notice, in Psalm 80, that idea of quickening is tied directly to worship. Quicken us, and we will call upon thy name. 
This is what the psalmist is saying to us in a very clear way. We require these quickening movements of God's grace to praise him, to call upon him aright. Because again, beloved, as the apostle reminds us, nothing in ourselves will induce true worship. It must be spirit-wrought grace under the fan of his work that produces this in us. But I want you to notice, beloved, that here you have not only a picture of strength provided, but here you have a mark of what true spiritual quickening looks like. And friend, again, this is, this is biblical piety. This is, again, not what you and I would hear if we were to walk you know, into in any number of congregations today in the broader church, or if we were to pick up a book on, on general godliness written in our generation, we wouldn't find what we're finding here. But the psalmist is saying here that genuine quickening leads men to worship. It leads men and women to the worship of God. That's a good way. That's a good way, beloved, for you and I to charitably, but no less really measure what one might call a work of God's Spirit? Does it induce the worship of God in those who are quickened? Do they have a greater affection for His courts? Are they driven to praise Him? If it's not, the psalmist would say, that certainly is suspect. Beloved, as we close, just a few words of application. First of all, in terms of how we apply this text to ourselves, we have to do so, obviously, by asking difficult questions. For you and for me, this text ought to challenge us. Because it comes, first of all, and asks us, what do we love? Do I have a love to be found in the public worship of God because there I meet with God? Do I love it? Ahab Ahab can call out to God. He can engage in acts of worship, apparently, because he feels the pangs of conscience and hardship. But do I have a love for worship? The second question is, do I have a willingness to suffer? Do I have a willingness to go through a valley of tears? If that is what it is that the Lord would have me walk through, that I might really meet with him. And thirdly, am I interested in this even under blessing? If the world were given to me, if 10,000 worlds were given to me, would I still count the public worship of God chief priority? There is comfort in the text as well. Beloved, how light are these worshipers, their affliction? How light is it, really, when you compare their affliction to what they will know? You remember the psalmist describes their coming to worship as appearing before God. Their valley of tears may be arduous in the moment. Your experiences, beloved, in seeking him, mourning over sin and also undergoing chastisement. may be arduous. The apostle in Hebrews 12 says as much. But how small a thing are those pains? 
in comparison to knowing and to truly meeting with the living God. And finally, there is an exhortation here. And beloved, you probably, you probably could, could guess uh, what this exhortation would be. The exhortation is, of course, not to forsake the public worship of God at any point. This is a clarion call for you and for me to remember that every time the public, of worship, the public worship of God is opened to us, it is something that we are to prioritize. Every occasion, we are to regard it affectionately, we're to regard it as something that ought to take priority. There will be providential hindrances, of course. The Lord knows these things. But our bent and disposition ought to be that our lives, as the psalmist here reminds us, are organized around these very things. A final note. Beloved, I know that we've read Revelation 2 twice now. and I've passed very little comment on that text. So allow me to do so now and briefly. In Revelation 2, you remember you have Christ giving to us the first two letters that are extended to the churches in Asia Minor. And to Ephesus, he says that Christ, that is the one who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, will remove the candlestick from Ephesus if they do not repent. And the question we have to ask is, what does that mean? What does that mean? Does it mean that that the Lord will remove the preaching of the word? Does it mean he will remove the sacraments? That he will remove the praise of God, the sung praise of God? What does he mean by that? And beloved, I think the only answer that we can really come to conclusively, it will be informed by our readings of the Old Testament. The Lord said very similar things through the prophets to his people of old. He said, you remember to Isaiah, that in his generation there would be those who would sit under a genuine ministry of God. That is, they would sit under the ministry of a true prophet. But that generation wouldn't benefit at all. In fact, they would be hardened under that ministry. The Lord, later on, through through other prophets, will say that though you have the temple though you have all of these ordinances around you, it will be nothing. I will remove my presence from it. I think that's how we're supposed to understand the removal of the candlestick. What Christ then is saying to the churches in Asia Minor is not that he will remove necessarily preaching, prayer, praise, sacraments. It's that he will remove the light and blessing that comes with them. And beloved, I'm saying that to you now because I think as we meditate on Psalm 84, we have to keep this in front of us. Is that something that our generation, not just ourselves, but broadly speaking, is that something that we're experiencing? Where in the public worship of God, we don't find that strengthening grace that we often read of centuries ago. Is it the case that we've not known that kind of blessing that the apostle himself says we ought to know? Where the unbeliever walks into the assembly and says that there he knows God dwells among his people. I'm not saying this at all to discourage you. 
Not at all. I'm saying this mostly, beloved, to quicken us. We need to be a people, a people who are more and more earnest in our approaches to God, praying that the Lord would create in us the same spirit we've been meditating on this evening. Because very likely, beloved, you and I are in a land where that candlestick is being removed. We're to meditate on that. We're to pray that the Lord God would visit us in grace. We need to know, beloved, that this has to be our disposition. If we want him to come, if we want these lands to know blessing under God, beloved, we need to look more like the psalmist we've been meditating on this evening. We need the quickening grace of God. And may we find it through Christ. Amen. Oh,